It's another blessed opportunity, certainly, that we've each been given tonight to assemble, and these songs have had such powerful messages in them. And the prayer that we joined in together just a moment ago, a very uplifting and powerful matter as well. And for the next few moments, our opportunity, of course, to give some thought to portions, sections, if you please, of the Word of God. You've already noticed on the wall, maybe even in the bulletin earlier today, that we're going to do some more questions and answers tonight, the ninth installment this year. And so when you sum up the number of questions we've considered, it certainly has been a significant number. And tonight, that'll be no different as we look at several questions that are now about to come before us. This opening slide is really just an introductory one, and it really hinges on that text read just a moment ago as Brother Dennis read that in our hearing. In Mark chapter 11, verse 29 wasn't it true that there Jesus, in fact, made observation? I, too, will ask you a question. May we never forget that the asking of a pertinent question is one of God's most favorite teaching tools. There are well over 2,000 questions in the Bible. God really has used the asking of a question as often a very meaningful way to get at the truth. We have, again, several questions that have been asked tonight. And as you can see on the slide... This is the particular sermon that occurs from time to time where you have the opportunity to select the sermon topics. And so tonight as we look somewhat briefly at each one of these, I hope you have your Bible and we will be looking at several particulars with respect to each one of these questions. <clears throat> the first question reads as follows. As usual, let me try to read it in exactly the wording that the person used to submit it. As, as always, I do not know who submitted them, and certainly am thankful for that. But as I read the question, some individual has asked us this question. I know that a lot of mixed marriages exist in today's world. I know God is no respecter of persons, and all races are equal in His sight. My question is, are mixed marriages wrong? What does the Bible have to say about the topic? And as you can see on the slide, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought it worthwhile to at least make a development as to the nature of some of what rests behind this question. Again, the individual asks, Are mixed marriages wrong? And the person preceded that by saying, God is no respecter of persons. On that slide, you'll begin to appreciate some of the following thoughts with me. First of all, may we never forget the fact that when it comes to marriage, it's the God of heaven who has full right to legislate concerning it. Man has no bearing on this topic. In other words, when you and I revisit Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, we learn on that occasion that there was Adam, but he was alone, verse 18 tells us, and that wasn't good. And so it was that God at that point put in practice a plan whereby a helpmeet for Adam came into being. And it was Eve. And as you and I will remember, God not only fashioned Eve, He not only brought her to Adam, but God married them. May we never forget it. What merely enough He created Eve, He also brought her to Adam, and He, of course, proceeded with that marriage ceremony. Adam and Eve were not husband and wife prior to the, that chapter's end, but yet they were husband and wife in the closing verse of it. That leads us to note some of these comments. 
just as it was then, it is still true that God has exclusive right to determine who is eligible to marry. In other words, God determines who are eligible persons to enter into a marriage. Now, you and I know today that men have tried, thinking that they have that right, but they don't and they never have. And so, when you and I approach a question like this one, what has God said about mixed marriages? You may notice in Matthew chapter 19, verse number 6, as Jesus Himself stated it there, "...what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." It is vital to notice what God hath joined together. It is God that does the joining. It isn't the person officiating at the ceremony. Now that person has a, a very important job without doubt. But it's God that ultimately joins those two, that man and that woman, in marriage. In addition to that, note what would be well for us to consider next. It is true that God has specified what His will is as it relates to the marriage of His children. And it has always been the will of God that His children marry His own children. In other words, a child of God needs to marry a child of God. Now, that was true in the Old Testament, and it's also true in the New Testament. I've asked you to consider texts like Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. God there specifically told the children of Israel, Don't you marry anybody else except a member of the children of Israel. Don't you give fathers, don't you give your daughters to anybody else to marry. And furthermore, don't you permit your sons to marry anyone else either. We could add to that text such as Numbers 36.6, where they're the daughters of Zelophehad. They asked the question and they were told, you have right to marry anybody you want so long as he's a member of the tribe of which you're a member. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Later on, we notice in Joshua 23.12, Joshua highlighted for the children of Israel, make certain that you marry those who appreciate God the way you do. Because if you don't, it will lead to problems and issues. Case in point, Nehemiah 13.23. Here we find, somewhat a few centuries later, Nehemiah, as he came back and attempted to assist in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, he found peoples and he said, What have you done? You have married the very ones God told you not to marry. In the book of Ezra, God says you've got to end those marriages. In the Old Testament, He told them you've got to divorce those wives. Now that law hadn't carried over to the New Testament. But God meant business when He asserted how vital, how important it was to marry a child of God. Let's come over into the New Testament in just a moment. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, we have this statement. Marry only in the Lord. Now, how much plainer does that need to be? We notice in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, that the apostles, they had a right to marry, but only those that were a sister. In other words, that's not your physical sister, but it's a sister in the Lord. And they had the right to marry such an individual. And today, you and I appreciate that it is wise, incredibly wise. In fact, it's that which follows the will of God for a person who is a child of God to marry a child of God. 
But that really wasn't the direct answer, or at least the matter of concern for the question. The question was, what about a mixed marriage? Let's quickly come to the bottom of that slide. A mixed marriage. You and I know that across the globe there are individuals with lots of differences in terms of appearance. Those are white or black or brown or yellow, and of course a lot of other particulars as well. What about the case of a person intermarrying with an individual of a different culture like that? The Bible does not overtly condemn it. What is of far greater importance is if that other person's a Christian and you're a Christian, then God doesn't so much frown on the nature of that, it doesn't violate any biblical law. But I would offer the following considerations at least, because the Bible does go on to say this. As we come to the close of that slide, it only considers in our mind the following one as well. Marriage is such a serious thing. It is a lifelong commitment. One of our later questions tonight will develop this point a bit more, and so I didn't include it here. But that lifelong commitment is not something you can get out of just at the drop of a hat. And therefore, even sociologists of our day today are quick to remind us there are some matters of great concern as you come to consider a mixed marriage, not the least of which are these. The mutual friends of the two, the children that are born into that union. Furthermore, the various customs that may well be very different between the two. The family circumstances may be very different. All of that would have to be carefully considered even before any marriage were even contemplated. For those reasons, it may well not be very wise to give to entertain a mixed marriage. The Bible does not condemn it as an overtly sinful thing, so long as, again, it's, let's say, Christian with Christian. But there are certainly other matters that one must never overlook due to the lifelong commitment that marriage brings. At this point, I think we've at least answered that question with a bit more consideration into it. And like I said, there will be some other things in these remaining questions tonight that will in fact also have a bearing on some even of that one. Question number two reads like this. In Matthew 19, Jesus made it very clear that divorce and remarriage is acceptable to God only if the divorce occurs because of adultery. My question is, should a Christian find themselves in a very violent and dangerous marriage? Can they obtain a divorce and still be pleasing to God? I know they cannot remarry. A very interesting question, as all of them have been. We can each, I'm sure, appreciate the nature and the thrust of a question like this one. First of all, let's give some thought to these matters. The person made this observation. Jesus made it clear that divorce and remarriage is acceptable to God only if the divorce occurs because of adultery. The person is drawing perhaps on Matthew 19 verse 9, maybe even Matthew 5 32, wherein in each of those cases that consideration is the very one that's mentioned. Jesus said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. That's the wording of Matthew 19, 9 at least. And on this slide, you and I might now notice, as we scan the fullness of the Bible's revelation concerning divorce, 
we would all agree that divorce, even in the best of situations, is a terrible thing because it means somebody hasn't been faithful to the vow they made. Someone hasn't been faithful to the promise they made, not only to the other person, but to God. So even at its best, divorce is terrible. And yet God in the Bible only gives one occasion in which He will in fact approve the granting of a divorce. And it's that case the person has mentioned. Fornication. If one individual in the marriage has committed fornication, then the innocent one, the other party, can divorce that, that guilty party. In some ways, that opens up, though, the latter part of our question. Because given that exclusiveness of marriage, consider how hurtful, how very challenging the situation is this person has described. Suppose that a person finds him or herself in a marriage that turns out to be violent, where this person is in fear perhaps of his or her life. Furthermore, it's described as dangerous. It is a sad, sad thing when a member of a marriage doesn't recognize and respect God's responsibilities that He gives to that person. Husbands are to love their wives, Ephesians 5.25. Not make them fearful or cause them to live in danger. And wives are to love and respect their husbands, Ephesians 5.33. Not, again, to cause them to live in the aspect of fear. But it still is true that there may be circumstances wherein one or the other of the parties does not appreciate those things God has said, and so they behave in a way that brings an aspect of fear and even danger with respect to the other party in that marriage. That's exceedingly sad. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7, and let's see what God has to say about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You may well recall that this chapter has much to say about divorce and remarriage, and we'll certainly only select a small section of the chapter. Let me invite your consideration beginning in verse number 8. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn." In the midst of that discussion, Paul highlights, given the present distress of that day, Remember, there was going to be a great deal of destruction with the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the other aspects of the empire. He says, right now, if you can, it'd be better not to marry. But then he quickly goes on and says this, And unto the married, verse 10, I command, Yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. So he now makes reference to something Jesus himself exactly taught, and he says, here's the Lord's advice, here's His commandment. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Once you've married, you stay together. You'll notice he gives no exception here. In the next verse, he however does say this, But, and if she depart... It's the will of God that, again, you not depart. Things ought to be such that that's not even a consideration. But verse number 11 says, If she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled. You'll notice he's describing what we would call separation. It is not 
a desirable thing for any man or woman in that situation to live under the fear that's being described, it would appear in this question. What Paul says is, for reasons perhaps of safety or otherwise, you may separate. But notice what he says, you're not allowed to remarry. He does say you need to be reconciled to your husband. That's the goal. Maybe this person can get the required help. Maybe the required counseling. Maybe some kind of means whereby that person can come to understand. If you do separate, the goal is for it to be only temporary. So you can come back together and try to have the family that God would have you to have. The question, of course, had asked us the following. Can they obtain a divorce? No. Nowhere in the Bible does it approve divorce except for fornication. And if that's not involved, even in cases like this, the best that could be hoped for is this separation, hopefully just temporary. That person and that family could be strengthened and brought back to where they ought to be. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, I would offer this thought. Paul here says that the goal ought to be a degree of reconciliation with the hope again a family is a great blessing from God. It's sad to think about it in a situation as this question has described it. That desire for reconciliation that I've tried to highlight twice. You might note that it sandwiches this thought. If at all possible, try to get some help. Elders would be fine gentlemen to talk with. Seek their insight and wisdom. There may even be professional counselors who could offer some very great help and things that could help move that marriage back to where it ought to be. But nowhere in either the Old or New Testament does it offer a, a circumstance whereby even in a case like that one, you can get a divorce. With that said, that does bring us to question number three. This question is a bit on the shorter side. It reads like this. Paul teaches us in Romans 13 that God authorized civil government and that we are to obey the laws of the land unless those laws are in direct conflict with the laws of God. My question is, if a Christian intentionally disobeys the laws that are not in conflict with the laws of God, is that sin? A good question, isn't it? Again, the latter part of it. If a Christian intentionally disobeys the laws that are not in conflict with the laws of God, is that sin? As you and I step through some of those appreciations, may we pause to highlight this. The person has done a masterful job at bringing to our attention Romans 13. So let's go ahead and be turning to that chapter. Romans, the 13th chapter. As we do that, might I say, along that same discussion we will be able to at least note the following as well. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now that text is found in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, and that's a premise that the person has especially recognized. We always seek to do God's will. The person is asked, what if we intentionally disobey the laws of the land? Is that sin? Verse 1 of chapter 13 of Romans reads like this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that receive or resist shall receive to themselves damnation. We've already answered the question, or perhaps I should say Paul has. The first part of verse number 2 said, Whosoever resists the power, what power? The context has just defined what power is under consideration. It's the power vested in civil government. It's the power bequeathed to them, if you please, delegated by the God of heaven. Paul says, whoever resists that power, resists the ordinance of God. Therefore, the conclusion is a rather evident one, isn't it? Yes, it's sin. If you and I purposefully, deliberately, intentionally then disobey the laws of the land when those are not in conflict with the laws of God, then we have committed an error. We've committed a sin. Hold your finger there. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at the way it's stated at that place. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll only read a couple of the verses, but we'll begin in verse number 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. May we appreciate the directness of this. Peter, in writing to those individuals, specifically said, Submit yourselves to what? To every ordinance. Not some of them, but to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. But someone might say, I don't like paying that much tax. I'll try to find a loophole and get out of it. As Christians, we shouldn't have that attitude. Or maybe someone else would say, but that particular law maybe is inconvenient. Maybe it's one that I would prefer not to follow. Well, that really doesn't matter. We've seen two passages, and we are admonished, aren't we, as those to have a high regard in an attitude of submission to those things declared, so long as they're, again, not in conflict with the laws of God. It is at that point, I would submit that our discussion takes us to question number four. Question number four. Another very good question. Sometimes these questions I might at least introduce and say are rather profound. If you think I've got it wrong, by all means, talk about it with me or maybe send the question to me again and say, did you think about this verse? Whatever you think might be the better approach. This question reads like this. Considering those in the first century that were baptized by John the Baptist and the example of Acts 19, does this passage teach that every single person that was baptized by John was required to have been baptized in the name of Jesus? Or was rebaptism only necessary for those individuals because of the apostles laying on of the hands on them? A very good question. The Bible does speak about the baptism administered by John the Baptist. In fact, I would ask us to consider that first. Without a doubt, that's not something just being made up. John did baptize. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, it says, All of Judea went out to him to be baptized. Now, again, that doesn't mean every single person, but that means a lot of the individuals in that entire region were moved by the preaching of John and actually went to where he was at Jordan, in fact, to be baptized by him. 
In addition to that one, in Mark 1 verse 4, we're told something about the particulars of that baptism. It was unto repentance of sins. You and I might need to keep that thought in mind. It'll be important in just a moment. But at this point, no doubt John baptized. To that we might add this. He baptized in Jordan. And John 3.23 says it was particularly at a location wherein there was much water. Again, take note, the kind of baptism that John practiced was immersion. It wasn't sprinkling, and it wasn't pouring, and it wasn't some figurative baptism either. It was literally an immersion, a submersion in water. Now, you and I would recognize that as a kind of burial in water, and no wonder the later New Testament will speak much about that as well. But back to our question in further development. It does seem rather vital to also keep in mind that Jesus and His disciples also baptized. John chapter 4 verse 1 particularly makes note of that fact. You may keep in mind that here was John, the immerser baptizing, but there was also Jesus and His disciples authorizing baptism. And at this point, isn't it interesting? The person has asked this question. Those individuals that were baptized by John, were they later rebaptized in the name of Jesus? That's a great question. It's been one that's been oft discussed throughout the centuries. To us has been brought in the wording of the question, Acts 19. You may want to be turning there, for we have a text that has a bearing on our answer to this. Acts 19, I'll begin reading in verse number 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The scene is an interesting one. Here were twelve disciples. They'd been baptized under the baptism of John. And yet when Paul came to Ephesus and had conversation with them, He, in fact, asked them this great question in verse 2. Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they were quick to reply, We haven't heard whether there is even such a thing as the Holy Spirit. That immediately brought into Paul's mind some reason to ask about their baptism. And so he said, Unto what then were you baptized? Paul immediately made a connection between the Holy Spirit and their baptism. And when they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit... He had immediate reason to question their baptism. And when they said we were baptized in John's baptism, you notice in verse number 5, they were now baptized in Christ. And so our question, a very definitive one, and perhaps this is worthy of note, it would appear there was a very great difference between the baptism administered by John and the baptism administered into Christ. Clearly, a number of things can be listed as different. John administered one, Jesus administered the other one. One, again, is in the name of Christ, again in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John's was not in that name, right? It was in John's name. 
that leads us perhaps to note this. Today, there's only one baptism. Ephesians 4, 5 says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That means, of course, for our consideration and in light of the desire to be saved, there is but one baptism. And so let's come full circle, put all that together. What then should we conclude? Those twelve had to be rebaptized, or maybe I should say, baptized into Christ. The baptism into John was not sufficient, and it was not the same thing. As you and I look then at the next slide, that seems to be a very strong clue then that you and I can utilize to phrase an answer to the question before us this very evening. It would seem that all the individuals that then had been baptized in light of the baptism of John would have desired longingly to be baptized with the baptism of Christ. It would be difficult to believe otherwise. Given the difference in those baptisms, here is Christ's baptism. He's now died on the cross and His blood is able to cleanse me from sin. But all those folks baptized under John, Jesus hadn't even died yet. I can say certainly this, had I been in that circumstance, even having been baptized by John, I would, you wouldn't have been able to keep me from being baptized by Christ, in the name of Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, knowing what that baptism accomplishes, knowing that it brings one into the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that it is for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38, and it is the thing whereby one is saved, 1 Peter 3, 21, and that it is the explicit operation of God, Colossians 2 verse 11. It seems difficult to believe one would not have needed to be baptized with the grandeur and the purposefulness of the Lord's baptism. And so, that's our answer to that question. Perhaps one final thing ought to be noted. The person who asked it, asked if this scene in Acts 19 only had relation to the laying on of the apostles' hands. I stopped reading in verse 5, but you may notice verse 6 does say, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them. The New Testament makes no connection between the laying on of hands and the characteristic described here in light of, if you please, this baptism. And so that has no bearing on the nature, if you will, of, of this particular answer. And so on to question number five tonight. Question five, another very good question. This one's a bit lengthier, but let me read it as again the person has written it. I have heard many arguments relating to the church of Christ taken from 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 about lifting up holy hands. I have heard that the church of Christ picks and chooses what it does in forms of worship styles taken from this very verse because the men leading in prayer or the congregation do not practice this. I know God demands us to worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Was this a cultural practice that those in the first century practiced? Is this something that the church should be doing today as a part of worship? Let's read 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, which is the text the person references. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 8. Paul writing says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And the person is making the following statement, that the men who lead us in prayer need to be up here like this. 
person is asserting, and rightfully perhaps it's a good thing to at least question, what does that verse mean? Because it's clear the men who lead us in prayer do not stand up here that way. What does it mean to lift up holy hands? The person again makes the statement about hearing arguments, perhaps other people who are neighbors or otherwise, that the church of Christ picks and chooses what are included in worship based, among other things, on that verse. Well, you'll perhaps notice on the slide, that is absolutely false. Neither the church of Christ nor, in fact, any human being has the right to pick and choose what is done in worship. Jesus Christ decided that 20 centuries ago. And anybody who thinks today that he or she has delegated rights to that are guilty of sin. Man does not pick and choose what is to be done in worship. In fact, we're told in John 4, 24, we must, may I repeat, must worship in truth and in spirit. Now, that certainly would include our discussion now, what does this mean? You probably can begin to appreciate as we ask, so what does it mean that a man needs to lift up holy hands? Would you consider these things with me? Paul was not describing the physical posture of the man leading the prayer. Hear me now. Paul was not describing the posture physically of the man leading the prayer. What he was describing was the godly demeanor of that man. The man needs to be a holy man, a godly person who is appreciated by those who are involved in this congregation as a man trying to do what's right trying to live in harmony with God. It's not describing his physical posture. Let's, in fact, make sure we understand that with several verses. Things to appreciate in light of it. In Acts 16, 24, may I say there was a couple of men praying. They were in prison and their hands were in stocks. May I ask, were they lifting up holy hands to God? To ask that question is to answer it. They couldn't have been. Their hands were again fastened in some stocks, and yet they were praying and God heard them. There was an earthquake that happened that night, you may recall, and ultimately a jailer was brought to Christ. Another example is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 12 and following. Again, as you appreciate Paul's explicit teaching concerning prayer, he said a lot of things that must be true about prayer, but not one time did he say a word about the man leading it, lifting up hands. Not one. He did describe, however, the godly demeanor. And he did describe the other aspects and features. I'll pray with the Spirit, and I'll pray with the understanding. He did say that. May I again say, there's more to be said even than that. Notice the verse that I've read in 1 Timothy 2, 8, the very one that was asked. It really helps us understand the meaning of this by itself. I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands. But the verse isn't finished. It says, without wrath and doubting. May I submit that latter part qualifies what's involved in lifting up holy hands. These men need to be understood as not having wrath, not having doubting. They ought not be men who agitate trouble. They ought not be men who stir up issues and cause problems. And they ought not be men given to doubt. 
They need to believe in the Word of God, believe in God, believe in Christ, and they're able with conviction to lead the audience in that kind of a prayer without wrath and doubting. It doesn't have anything to do with where their hands may be. There's more, however, that might be said about that. Several times in the Bible, statements like the following are made. In Psalm 24, verse number 4, have you ever given thought to this? It's a powerful idea. The question is somewhat like this. Who shall ascend to the holy hill of God? Now that's a great question, isn't it? Who is going to ultimately make it to heaven? I'd like to know the answer to that, wouldn't you? First part of the answer is, he that has clean hands. Does that mean that you and I had better make sure to wash our hands the moment before we die? Of course that's not what that means. What that's referring to is the kind of godly disposition of a person, an individual who would then live in a notion of purity, with directed toward godliness and holiness. So there we have an Old Testament example wherein this reference to the hands isn't such that the posture and the nature of its cleanliness was under, under discussion. It was the kind of a heart that directed those hands. What about Lamentation 341? Isn't that an interesting passage? Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. Now who can do that literally? Can you take your heart out of your chest, lift it up with your hands to God? Well, of course we understand what that means. A description by the prophet Jeremiah of that circumstance in which a person lifts up with hands and heart directed in godly disposition toward our Maker in heaven. Perhaps one more, Job 17.9. Now that passage is even older than the other two. But isn't it beautiful to consider there again how sweetly the observation is easy to understand? I'd say then we can conclude our lesson like this, our question at least. When Paul said, I will that the men pray lifting up holy hands, he wasn't talking about their posture. In fact, it'd be entirely proper given the New Testament description. A man could kneel up here on the front of on this podium. He may have a heart sufficiently contrite, he could kneel and lead us in prayer, and there wouldn't be a thing wrong with it. Now, we do it for microphone reasons by the gentleman standing right here, and that's fine. May we say then, as we give thought to, we desire that he have or have a heart that's pure, a heart that loves the Lord, a heart that wants to lead this group into a properly appreciated prayer that will be pleasing unto God. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 5a, Blessed are the pure in heart! For they shall see God. That's the kind of man we won't lead in this prayer. And this figurative lifting up hands is Paul's way of describing that kind of attribute and characteristic. Having looked at those five questions, one more in the lesson tonight will be yours. Question number six. This question reads as follows. I recently heard in a conversation with a member of a denomination a statement that when we as individuals sin, our physical bodies are what sins, not the internal soul. Thus, considering once saved, always saved, now I know that the Bible does not teach this anywhere, but write the opposite in every New Testament book. Considering the soul and our physical bodies, could we conclude that both sin as one? 
Considering the statement that God made in Ezekiel 18, verses 20 to 24, the soul that sinneth it shall die, again, could we conclude that both sin is one? Now, I've tried to supply some additional information, thoughts, if you please, about that. You may notice that though it takes us a slight bit of field, the very idea of the question, the idea behind it is the basis for at least two of the books of the New Testament. Both the book of 1 John and the book of Colossians has a bit of their background touching this distinction that this person has noted in the question. If I may again put it in my own words. From ancient times, it has been the assertion of some. Don't you realize there's a difference between the physical body and the soul? And if I engage in sin, it's the body that sins, not the soul. So I can engage in sin but still be pure, my soul that is, pure in the sight of God. That's the claim. The Gnosticism claim, which again is the New Testament word that describes that, that's the whole basis of 1 John. May we say how wrong that is. John labored at length to try to put to rest how wrong that was. He tried to highlight in their mind that there is no distinction like this. If I engage in sin, Though, of course, with my body, I, I have to participate in it that way, but that stains my soul. The two are not separate. Look at some of these verses. In Micah 6, verse 7, even in the Old Testament, how strongly the prophet Micah asserted that sin in the body contaminates the soul. The two, in essence, are joined in that reality and in the consequences of it. In Galatians 5, verses 19 and following, Paul lists a number of the works of the flesh. And you'll notice the person guilty of this will not go to heaven. Now you'll notice he mentions things like adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, uncleanness, and so on down the list. So notice those are physical acts, and if you engage in them, then it keeps your soul out of heaven. The Bible never makes a distinction that some in the denominational world have wanted to claim. Here again, the person that was overheard in conversation speaking about this, again, the Bible doesn't teach it. Maybe two final verses. In Matthew 7, verse, verses 13 and following, Jesus said, Enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. As Jesus identified the wide versus the narrow way, He did so in language that simply is unmistakable. And you'll notice He again, even there, made no separation. Wouldn't you agree, if it were possible to simply participate in some sin, but yet your soul still be pure, wouldn't nearly everybody be saved? There would never be any Christians lost for sure. But yet in Matthew 13, Jesus specifically said some Christians are going to be lost. He taught it for that reason. May you and I close that slide and notice in Revelation 21, 27, how marvelous it is to hear that no defilement will enter heaven. In light of that then, sadly, that conversation piece was not a correct statement. And with that, we close the sixth question tonight and we close our lesson as well. 
it would be fair to thank each person who submitted questions for our discussion this evening. We always strive to use these as times to, to help alleviate or at least address issues that may be resting on our mind. I hope that in our discussion we've at least been reminded of the perfectness of the Word of God. It's our desire always to allow it to guide us, to lead us through this life safely, in a safe state, so that we can leave this place and go home to glory. Tonight, if there's anyone in the audience that perhaps we could be of help to you in a public way, perhaps in the rededication of your life to the Savior, we'd be honored to do that tonight. You need to simply repent of those errors known publicly, confess them, and we'd be happy to pray to God on your behalf. If there's someone that would wish to become a Christian, though, what a great night that would be. You could become a Christian as you submit, of course, in belief, repentance, confession, baptism. As we proceed then to close this part of our lesson and to be charged for our week of service to the Master, let us be thankful for the leadership of the Word of God. Tonight, as we're about to stand and sing this invitation hymn, if there's one or more that would wish to come, we'd encourage you to do that now while together we stand while we sing.